I'm Mike Simmons, and this is the Yearbook Wise Podcast. Hi there, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I feel like I've been saying this a lot recently to you, but it's been a while. We uh, got through distribution of uh, Tesserae Volume 5, and uh, through the end of the school year, uh, we just ended classes yesterday on June 17th, and uh, graduation here isn't until next Thursday, the uh, 27th, but it's all I could do to try to set aside some time to get back with you all. And uh, I've got to say, uh, just coming off the conversation that I'm about to share with you, I can't wait for you to hear it. I called on my uh, longtime friend and colleague, uh, somebody I consider a mentor, uh, Logan Imany from the University Lab Schools in Chicago, to talk about and, and talk through some topics related to uh, student empowerment in our uh, labs and newsrooms, uh, student press rights, relationships with administrators, and really setting our staffs uh, in yearbook and, and really at, at journalism at large on paths to credibility, uh, where they're doing and encouraged to do and supported in doing great journalism, uh, fully aware and embracing uh, their uh, First Amendment scholastic press freedoms, their free speech rights, and, and all that comes with that. Um, certainly, it can be uh, a little fraught, a little daunting as you uh, educate yourself on what uh, students are empowered to do under the First Amendment. Um, and, and to be very clear, this isn't a, a, um, a wonky talk of just First Amendment things, but there's lots of practical advice that Logan offers uh, in here from his experience since uh, 1997, uh, both in the classroom and as the uh, executive director of the uh, National Scholastic Press Association. Logan currently sits as a board member of the uh, Student Press Law Center, SPLC.org. We talk about them. We talk about the, uh, just briefly, the Society of Professional Journalists, the uh, JEA Scholastic Press Rights Committee. There are so many resources out there from your own local and regional uh, Scholastic Press Associations out to uh, the, the biggies, uh, CSPA, NSPA, Quill and Scroll. Uh, just understand that, that in this conversation, there's definitely a through line of uh, education of embracing and engaging with resources, uh, this podcast among them, uh, to, to get your uh, staffs to, to a better place, uh, recognizing that this kind of change um, or, or growth and development of a, a staff down a journalistic path uh, doesn't just happen overnight. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. That's all in the conversation. I do want to remind you that uh, it's always great to hear from you. I'd love to have you reach out at iteachyearbook at gmail.com or uh, to have you or your publication or maybe staff members of your publication follow the podcast at, at yearbookwise. That's yearbook, W-H-Y-S, on Twitter. But without much more, uh, here is my conversation with Logan Imany. So joining me today on the Yearbook Wise podcast, uh, a friend that I've known in the scholastic journalism world for like, coming on over half a decade, anyhow, if not longer, uh, Logan Imany, currently of the laboratory schools in Chicago, formerly of uh, Washington State and of NSPA. Logan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I say, I'm, I've been looking forward to this and, and, and known that I want to have you on um, for a while, but I'd love for you to just dive in and, and introduce yourself to the audience. Well, thank you again for having me. Uh, I 
started teaching in 1997 in Washington State, and I taught yearbook and journalism, or excuse me, yearbook and newspaper journalism uh, in Wenatchee, Washington, the Apple capital of the world. And from there, I moved to NSPA, where I was for six years. I had a brief stopover at School Newspapers Online. And then since 2015, I've been the entire journalism department, uh, teaching journalism all day at the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools here in Chicago. And, and that, I just want to stop right there for a second. The, the laboratory schools, can, can you give uh, somebody, and even I don't know that much about it, can you give us the 30-second uh, primer on, on what that is, where it is, its relationship to the university? It's, it's a K-12, is it? Sure. It's actually a nursery school through grade 12, but we're divided into a variety of schools, and I teach at the high school. Um, the laboratory schools, founded in 1896 by John Dewey. And most teachers are familiar with Dewey and his concept of progressive education, the the foundation of which is learning by doing. And um, Professor Dewey came to Chicago and founded our school. And since then, um, the laboratory schools have been home to what they say now, the youngest members of the University of Chicago academic community. And so about 60% of our students have parents who have an affiliation with the university. Typically, their parents are professors or um, administrative staff. And then the remainder of our students are from throughout the south side of Chicago or the city at large and even some of the suburbs in northwest Indiana. Excellent. Um, Tell us just a little bit about your yearbook program. Sure. So um, it's a pretty traditional yearbook, to be honest. Um, You know, it's I think we just finished volume 116 and we are a fall delivery book. So that means that we have the luxury at the beginning of the school year to take things a little bit slower and then kind of ramp it up in the winter and do this crush of work in the last month of school and even the last week, uh, culminating with graduation and uh, work session right afterward. And this year we had 20 students on the staff of sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And it's a class that they take for credit, although some of them um, take it in what we call by arrangement, meaning that they can't fit it in their schedule, but we arrange a time uh, in their schedule for them to come in to work on the yearbook. And, you know, the pros and cons of that, uh, I go back and forth. The pros are that they are able to fit it in and they many times have a huge workload with their other courses, but they're very committed and they want to be part of the yearbook team. And then the cons are that they just don't have that synergy of all being in the same place at the same time. So there's an extra pressure on communication, but at the same time, um, the 21st century technology like messaging apps, Google Docs, uh, things like that really allow them to not have as many sticky notes and bulletin board posts as maybe they would have had to 10 or or more years ago. Right, right. It sounds like a really healthy program for you too. Um, And is it okay to advertise uh, employment opportunities here on the podcast? Sure. Well, we just are in the process of putting out a... um, a job opportunity for someone to come and teach with us. We're splitting my job into two jobs, and that's to allow for growth in the department. We've had a growth in enrollment and interest in journalism. And so I will be taking the newspaper aspect and beginning journalism, and the new person will take on photojournalism and yearbook. And hopefully we can grow this even more. And so that position is advertised right now. We're just starting uh, the first steps of, of that process. And we'll see what, 
you know, we'll see where we end up. I'm optimistic. And I think we have a great program that should be attractive to any yearbook advisor anywhere. Uh, I've known you again, you and I would have to chase back through CSPA and, and some NSPA conventions to, to pin the date down. But suffice it to say, actually, it might be about 10 years now. Mm-hmm. You are one of the most thoughtful and articulate people I know, smartest as well, also very humble. And what I want to highlight there is the, the program is thriving because of your leadership. So what a testament that it's at the place where now it needs to be split and grown and cultivated yet more. Um, I don't know that you'll take it, but congratulations, man. That's huge. Nice. <laughs> Thank nice you very job. much. Thank you. That, that's huge. And and also I should know, and it's going to date the podcast, but today is your birthday, is it not? Uh, well, it was yesterday, but yes. Um... Forgive me. Belated <laughs> plus <okay>. one. <laughs> Thanks. That's awesome. Um, well, listen, you know, we have uh, Facebook told me about your birthday and, and Facebook is a little bit of what got us here um, in that you and I have, have both been involved and I think really enjoyed um, the, the conversations that come about from and, and the community that's developed around some of the advisor-based uh, journalism uh, and yearbook groups uh, on Facebook. You and I both um, frequently contribute, and I don't mean to offer that up in any kind of you know pompous way. It's just, it's been a lot of fun to um, get a better sense of, of kind of the state of the nation and, and even some folks in Canada too of, of scholastic media, yearbooks in particular, uh, maybe to offer some, some input and feedback uh, where we can um, but it's also been, speaking for myself, it, it's been a little bit challenging um, because I think I've, I've been cautioned in remembering that some of the things that I enjoy in my program um, aren't present in a lot of programs um, in countries, or, or sorry, in states around the country. And, and I don't mean to sound, um, and I come across you know pompously, I might say that once or twice more while we record, but um, I'm not talking about like, hey, check us out in our big lenses. Uh, and on all of our awesome camera equipment, it's more like check us out and the healthy relationship we enjoy with our admin and our principal, where they trust our student journalists to do their job ethically and responsibly. And how often uh, you and I have been reminded that that not everybody out there enjoys that kind of trusting relationship with their administrators. And all of that is to say that's kind of our entry point on this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um there's so much that we could get into here. I, I know we're going to talk about uh, First Amendment uh, case law and, and and things like that. But to set the stage, could you talk just briefly about your relationship with administration at uh, the university lab schools and and maybe what freedoms uh, your students enjoy? Just kind of paint the picture so that that we know what we're what what your experience has been with that. Sure. Well, I mean, I'm really fortunate, and I I do want to acknowledge that, as you said that I do work in a school that really does pride itself on protection of freedom of expression, almost to an extreme. Um, the University of Chicago is well known to have this as an institutional value from its undergraduate students, graduate students, uh, its professors, and to, as I mentioned before, the youngest members of the academic community, which are the students at our high school and even down to our middle school and lower school. And it's this same sort of value is in place for everyone who's part of this community that we value dissent. We value expressing yourself. And it's not just a patriotic expression of like freedom of speech or freedom of the press, but the idea that we should be exploring and questioning and challenging and not just taking things for granted. And that's at the root of the kind of discourse and study that we have at the university. And of course at the high school as well. So, the idea that an administrator would want to review 
um, any sort of journalism before it was published or would tell me how to um, to teach something or or to try to put limitations on that student speech in it obviously except for some sort of you know um, unprotected speech like defamation or incitement or things like that it would just be really counter to the values of our school and again I, I'm fortunate to work in that environment a previous job that I had was at a regular public school and so you know I've certainly worked in in an environment that didn't have that kind of established freedoms um, but I I think that it's really important to use that responsibly and to also um, make sure that you exercise those rights in a way that really live up to the founding values. When we were talking in pregame a little bit uh, back and forth, uh, getting ready for this conversation, you shared a little bit more from your community in Washington, uh, Wenatchee, is it? Yes. So in um, go ahead. I was going to say a little bit skews a little bit more conservatively politically or, or yeah. Can you unpack that? Yeah. So Wenatchee, Washington is in central Washington. And I think when most people think of Washington state, they see it as a, a blue state on the political map on election night or in polls. And certainly it's Washington state's dominated by um, more left-leaning liberal voters in the urban centers, Seattle or Tacoma, but pretty much everything outside of that in Washington state, except for some little bubbles, is very conservative politically. And, um, you know, central Washington is a traditionally agricultural area and rural. And so not that there can't be liberal or um, progressive people who live in farm areas or who are farmers, but it does tend to be more politically conservative. And so that community had an expectation of, I guess the schools being more conservative. And so uh, the journalism program did tend to attract the students who are maybe more politically liberal as, you know, a place for them to find their, their own, um, I guess, little corner of the world to be able to express themselves. But I think that we were able to be successful in that program and have a lot of freedoms because the students had established credibility. And so they exercised their rights. They knew what those rights were and they didn't abuse them. Like, you know, they weren't just out to print whatever they wanted simply and, you know, hide behind the first amendment and say, well, it's freedom of speech or freedom of the press. I can do whatever I want. Instead, they did good journalism. They did it a lot. And people came to expect that the newspaper and the yearbook were going to cover a story and it was going to be truthful. It was going to be honest. It was going to be transparent. And, um, Sure, there were times when that ruffled feathers and even really upset some people and maybe challenged what their view of a school newspaper or a school yearbook should be. Um, but at the same time, I think that what they appreciated eventually was that these are the rights of the students and they're able to exercise them and they're doing it in a way that is within the law. And at the end of the day, we can disagree on whether someone should write a story or should cover a story in that way but not that they don't have the right to do it. And now Washington state is one of the 14 states that has um, free expression protections for students and for advisors. So it's been a great um, progress there in that state as well. 
and I, and I don't think that they are uh, audience members, but shout out to Fern Valentine and Kathy Schreier and Vince DeMero and all of the other folks who worked in Washington for nigh on, I think, 14 years to get the new voices law passed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I testified for that bill in 2007 or 2006. I mean, and it's it didn't even pass for another almost 10 years. So it's it, and they had started working on it even years before. So it's a long time in coming and well overdue. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and new voices we may get to here in a moment. I think one thing that's interesting for a takeaway for me from what you just shared was that um, establishing that credibility within your school and community was was a process, right? And and I think that sometimes when, when I talk with people online or informally or at a workshop, um, there's this, you know, I, I share proudly that our administrators are hands off. Um, and I would say it it was never really uh, that they were never really that hands on, but certainly the journalism that we've been doing has matured. Um, and the mental health article that my kids published in last year's book, we wouldn't have had a prayer of doing it responsibly, covering it well back in 2004 when I was still a yearbook baby. But for uh, programs that want to do and I don't know if you roll your eyes at the phrase, but like harder journalism or more, you know, Im impactful journalism, more so than like the soccer club had a car wash uh, on August 30th. And we're covering that in the yearbook, but covering some of these tougher topics, deeper topics, however you want to frame it. Um, it may be that a staff that wants to do it, you know, isn't or an advisor that wants to support their staff in doing it isn't there right now, but could be on a path to establishing that credibility. Um, my question for you is, could, could you illustrate a little bit of, uh, of uh, did, you, did your staff in Washington go through a, a process like that, your journalism staff? Was it, can you see the through line of like, this year we were doing this kind of journalism, kind of a lighter story, but then we started and then we started. And by then we knew that we had to, mm -hmm. and you were able to get after something more substantial or with more weight. Was it, was it like that? Do I understand that? Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, it, listen, I think a well, I guess a well-regarded, high quality journalistic program doesn't like spring forth fully grown and developed. Right. You have to <laughs> right. plant a seed and then you have to nurture that sprout and you have to, you know, continue to fertilize and continue to water it and, and to keep that plant metaphor going, you have to make sure that it blossoms. And I think the number one thing when I first got there that I wanted to do was to just establish journalistic credibility. And I didn't have in my mind, like, I'm going to turn this program into one that is an award-winning, hard-hitting journalism program. I just didn't know really how else to do it. I mean, I had done yearbook and newspaper as a student in high school. I was the ad manager of the newspaper, and I was the um, editor of the yearbook as a senior. And I only say that to just point out that, I had sort of grown up in a journalistic program. So the idea of a yearbook that would have goofy captions or a bunch of collages was just not in my DNA. So I had been trained that this is how you do it. Um, and I think what's really important is you can establish some of that credibility from the get-go, whether you're a new advisor or you're trying to evolve your program. And that's I mean, very simple. You can just start to say, we're going to have a more truthful, more honest um, inventory of the events of the school year, whether that's his newspaper or yearbook. Um, and we're going to, for example, have detailed captions with every photo. And we're going to have the five W's and H, and then we're going to have an extra sentence about 
background information and maybe a quote from one of the sources that are featured in that photo. So even right there, you're sort of ratcheting up the quality of journalism. And when you ratchet up the quality of journalism, you ratchet up the credibility of your publication. And I think that when you do that, you are kind of boosting your reputation and boosting the expectation. And it, with a yearbook, we only get one shot at this every year. So right, right. You, it takes a while. You cannot like turn this machine around in one year and get it from, you know, pitiful to pacemaker. You can, I think, start down that path and you can uh, certainly improve it in a lot of ways. But I think that you you can't expect that everything's going to change in a year. I mean, you're changing a culture and and your audience may not be as far developed on that journey as you are. I mean, you could have been talking about something for six or eight months in your program, in your classroom, and working on it in your in your own um, computer lab, but your audience hasn't seen any of that. So they're not going to see the results until distribution day, which may have been you know, a year later from your goal setting meeting. So again, I think it, it is a slow evolution, but you certainly can um, start that path and there are very simple ways to do it. Yeah, and there's a lot of exemplar work out there as well. Um, you talked about from pitiful to pacemaker. I mean, the the NSPA Best of the High School Press and CSPA resources and their Crown uh, DVD and and the rest. There's so many rich resources out there for staffs to learn or advisors to learn from other uh, staffs and publications. Yeah, so definitely sure. Want to advocate for. And the best, and going back to school newspapers online, don't they curate a, a best of snow uh, list as well? Absolutely. And I think you can sort of reverse engineer from any of these exemplars and say, well, what are they doing that we're not doing? If they're the ones getting recognized uh, for their coverage or their copywriting or their photography, like what is what does theirs look like that ours doesn't? And certainly right. most of the um, publishing partners have some sort of curriculum or, I mean, heck, there's plenty of stuff available through uh, the Facebook groups that you mentioned, and even teachers just being generous enough to share. I do have to, and, to, and to, to shout out to a ahead. friend, my friend Susan Hollihan. I stole that pitiful to pacemaker line from her. Oh, very good. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. I was wondering if there was a backstory. Uh, and two, you, you and I are both active with, with JEA and, and their curriculum resources for uh, publication advisors of all stripes are certainly worthy and in-depth. And uh, a, there's a ton to, to consume there uh, for advisors as well. So listeners, if you are not yet JEA members, um, highly recommend um, you pursue that or your local and regional Scholastic Press Association as well. There's lots of resources out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you touched briefly on your students uh, being familiar with the law, and uh, without getting too much in the in the wonky weeds of it, I was wondering if you would share with our audience a, a primer, uh, flashing back to 1967 and 69 uh, with the Supremes and the Mary Beth Tinker case. Oh, sure. So, I mean, the Tinker versus Des Moines case is really the foundation of, I guess, student-free expression in schools. And prior to 1969, so prior to 50 years ago when this case was decided, you know, it was not clear yet whether students had um, the right to freedom of expression at school. And when Mary Beth Tinker and John Tinker and some other friends of theirs wore black armbands to protest the Vietnam War in the middle of the 60s, they knew that it was going to cause some reaction. The principal had told them not to wear their armbands um, at the high school or the middle school that they attended. Mary Beth was in, I think, seventh grade. And because it would be offensive to families who'd had a, a member in the service or who'd had even lost a member of their family to the war. 
And they wore their armbands anyway, saying that it was a symbolic protest. They weren't out to sort of offend anyone. And they were suspended. And when they ultimately took their case um, through district court and appellate court and the Supreme Court, you know, the Supreme Court did rule in their favor and said that this silent and symbolic protest was um, allowed and that students don't shed their constitutional rights to freedom of expression at the schoolhouse gate. And so this was really a landmark because, like I said, we had not had certainty prior to this about whether students could express themselves at school. And certainly that would vary depending on local custom or practice and an administrator or teacher's willingness to allow students to do so. And so I think it kind of, um, it really changed the course of schools in America. And so when we look back at those brave students who are willing to say, this is right, what we're going to do, and that you silencing us is wrong, uh, we're going to stand up and be willing to take that to the courts. Um, I think it, I do teach that in my school, even though I work at an independent school, I still teach that case because I think it's so important to what we are as a democracy and as a nation that we value the voices of everyone and that the First Amendment applies to everyone. You don't get those rights at a certain age. You don't get them um, because of your citizenship status or because of your gender or race or any other factor. You're, you're in America and you have those rights even at school. And certainly there's some limitations on those. And we've seen those, obviously, things like defamation or incitement to riot. Um, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, for example. But at the same time, by and large, students do have the right to freedom of expression at schools. And I think we can, as you said earlier, draw the through line from there to the really amazing journalistic work that resulted beginning in the 1970s and continuing through today. And I think you see it more in the states where students have those rights established by law and clearly established by law. Um, but I think that the Tinker case has definitely fostered an environment where students do express themselves. And if we take a quick aside to, um, you, you talked about these states and, and you know, namely for those of you in the audience not familiar with um, the current state of affairs with scholastic press rights or the New Voices movement, there are 14 states where students enjoy uh, the protections granted under Tinker or better protections. The other 36 are held under the sway, uh, the very vague sway of language that came about in the Hazelwood case in 1988. And Logan, in, in what way does Hazelwood inform uh, the oversight that the principals engage in in those other states? Well, I think what Hazel, well, Hazelwood was clearly a limitation to Tinker. And Hazelwood set things back in the sense that it, it gave administrators a lower hurdle to cross when they wanted to exercise some sort of control over the content of student media. And most of these cases deal particularly with student newspapers, but yearbooks are also student media that are covered under these same laws. Um, and court decisions. So like I said, Hazelwood set things back a little bit when um, at Hazelwood East High School in the St. Louis area of Missouri, um, students had a practice of submitting their paper for review to the principal prior to it being published. And through a variety of circumstances, I'll give you the short version here, um, the normal, normal process wasn't followed. And so two pages of the paper were removed prior to publication. And the students didn't know this until the paper was printed. And the articles dealt with uh, teen pregnancy and the effects of divorce on teens and some other things. And the principal had uh, 
what the principal believed were valid reasons, but the student disagreed. And ultimately they sued and went to the Supreme Court thinking that their rights had been violated. But the Supreme Court said that because the paper at that case was um, part of a course that was offered by the school for credit, and because the school had an interest in promoting um, its mission, that the school could uh, exercise more control than other types of speech at school where a student might be um, at lunchtime or um, in some sort of debate or something like that. And so the effect of that in the years since has been in some ways really chilling because most yearbook classes and newspaper classes are in fact courses that students take for credit and the salary of the teacher is paid by the school district. And so sometimes school administrators get overzealous and um, feel that that entitles them to be the publisher or the last editor to see any sort of proofs. And, and I also think that it's important to mention that many, many cases, there are school administrators who exercise no prior control of the uh, student media at all and allow the students and the advisor uh, to make those decisions uh, together or the students on their own, depending on the state that they live in. So Hazelwood has been a very confusing case. And I think that's what one of the biggest benefits of these um, new voices uh, legislation that's been passed is really helpful because it untangles this confusion from administrators who think that because they are sort of the top of the hierarchy pyramid in their school that they are the controller of all things related to the school. And in fact, with regard to student media, uh, I disagree. They are not the editor of the student media. They're the principal of the school. And I think oftentimes an analogy that's used is um, we wouldn't let the mayor of a city edit the community paper. And so why would we let the principal, who's a government employee in, in public schools, uh, be the editor or given a disproportionate influence over the content of the school yearbook or the school newspaper? And sometimes I'm, I'm fine of saying, you know, I, I've heard that principals are concerned about grammar or about there being mistakes uh, in articles and things like that. And and then that's why they have to uh, exercise prior review, make those edits, push that back on the staff. And I'm thinking to myself, so what happens on opening night of the drama club performance if somebody flubs a line? That's a mistake made. So do we now have principals taking the spotlight as Benvolio? Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how people in the audience will feel about the analogy, but I, I think there's some truth um, in there at, at any rate. Um, this all brings us to many, 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 many discussions that I've seen uh, you and me engage in and, and try to offer some support to uh, advisors who are on those online groups reaching out for help, um, saying, you know, my principal has told us that we have to or um, my kids tried to fill in the blank and the principal said no or, you know, any of the rest of it. And, and what I'd like to do is, is kind of develop a, a through line in our conversation talking about that process of establishing credibility. Um, you and I are firmly, um, I don't want to say outliers, but definitely at one end of the spectrum as it goes to a shared belief that uh, we should be empowering uh, students' uh, editorial mm -hmm. freedoms and, and, and control. Mm -hmm. um, how do we then, you and I, um, frankly speaking, from a position of privilege, support uh, and offer advice or counsel to advisors uh, who who are seeking this and and who are uh, frustrated in their relationships with with principals. What are some of the practical 
skills or or anecdotes we can share, history that we've got, um, or or resources we could turn them to, to say, okay, this isn't all going to change in one year or with one edition or issue. If we're talking about newspapers, yearbooks, what have you, but this is a way to make some measured incremental change and to support your students, but not jeopardize your job, which is often right. you know shared on on, on Facebook. Um, I know there's a lot there to unpack, but 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 where can we start on on offering some of that advice? And to be very clear too, Logan, I know neither you nor I want to sound like you know we're not trying to be the the wise gurus up on the mountain or anything like that. Um, but we've we've been through some of this and and have worked on developing that credibility, I guess, and and that's mm-hmm. some of the stuff that I wanted to share. Sure. Well, I. First of all, yes, I, I agree with all of that. I don't want to come across as a know-it-all. I'm only sharing my own story and what has worked for me and what I think allows me to be successful now um, in some ways. And I think first and foremost, knowing the law. I think every advisor has an obligation, and not just a responsibility, but an obligation to know the law that governs their area of the curriculum. And just like you would expect any coach uh, to understand and know the rules, not just of the game, but like of of good coaching and good practice, you would expect any advisor to know the law in their curricular area. So I think that means copyright law. I think that means libel and other areas of unprotected speech, the law for privacy and invasion of privacy. Uh, and then depending on your school district or school system or county or state, uh, what the laws are that govern that. And I think I shared with you previously that um, early in my career, I was fortunate to take a course at the Student Press Law Center on press law. And that is not available now, but there are a lot of other resources that are available. But, But that was motivated by a desire that I had that if there was going to be an expert about student journalism and student press law in my school building, it was going to be me. I didn't want anyone else to be able to say that they knew more about my job than I did. And maybe that, I mean, I don't know what all the motivations were. I was a young teacher at the time trying to prove myself maybe um, and establish an area. But I think at the root of it was I needed to know everything I could so that I wouldn't be surprised or kind of um, maneuvered into doing something that was either limiting my students' rights or that was going to um, get me in trouble. And so probably I was more motivated by not getting in trouble at that point in my career. And (laughs) so, um, but I just wanted, I soaked up everything I could. And so I was the one who was able to say to the principal, well, here's what Hazelwood means and what you can do and can't do. Even under Hazelwood, it doesn't allow you, for example, to censor a student opinion piece if it's otherwise protected speech, meaning that it's not defamatory or, um, insightful or things, you know, inciting or things like that. And so, you know, a lot of times people can just take one little bit of knowledge that they have and suddenly they think they're an expert. Well, I wanted to actually be the expert in my building. And so I worked really hard to know the law. And I think that, you know, when you know the law, you can advocate for yourself with confidence. So it wasn't about me trying to convince the principal that he should or shouldn't censor the paper. I knew that he couldn't because I knew the law. And so, I mean, I guess he could have removed me as advisor if he had wanted to, but, um, you know, I just felt like it was really important to know the law. Now, every person is going to have their own limit for how far they're willing to stretch and stick their neck out. And for me, that's pretty far. 
<clears throat> excuse me. And I think that, so first and foremost, knowing the law is just super, super important. And that then you can go from there about whether you should or shouldn't. And ethics is probably a whole other podcast about whether you should um, print information or how you should tackle a story, things like that. And certainly there's plenty of conversation around that. When you talk about um, next additional next steps, um, the person who stands in the way or is perceived to stand in the way uh, of the students is so often the principal or administrator that you report to. It could be a superintendent, assistant, what have you. How how do you engage or offer uh, encouragement to an advisor who needs to um, to push back or to advocate for their students who wants to start taking steps towards change? How do you establish that relationship and and begin that conversation? Well, I think that's really important too. And you know, just as you can say, I know the law, and I'm going to dig my heels in and stand up. And sometimes you have to do it just that way and just simply say, no, this is not acceptable, um, or no, this is what the law is, and you don't have that that power or authority. I think that there's also a lot of value in establishing a, a really strong relationship with your administrators. Uh, in your building and or in your school system, whether those are principals, assistant principals, superintendents, all sorts of folks, athletic directors as well. Um, and you can really try to challenge their assumptions. So knowing the law is crucial, but also, you know, understanding that they don't have a background in that and that they may need to be pushed and that their exposure to student journalism is probably their own high school experiences or the last advisor or, you know, where they're when their kids were involved or something like that. So it could have been many, many years ago. And you have to push back on that. So I'm a big believer in a philosophy that I learned from Randy Swikel, who's a legend in our field, and he's a now retired advisor from here in Illinois. Um, but he has sort of shared this philosophy about can we agree statements. And I think what it really helps with is understanding how much common ground that you and someone else, in this case, an uh, administrator, may have. And so um, if you start from a point of, can we agree that students learn best when they have a practical application? Yes. Can we agree that they should you know, take the leadership in their own learning? Yes. And pretty soon you can understand all of the areas where you do agree and you're pretty far along together and you look back and say, look at all this stuff that we agree on. And it's only this one little area that we disagree on. and Let's focus on that rather than starting from opposite and adversarial corners, where I think sometimes it, we get hung up on focusing on one little thing, but it actually ends up being a much bigger problem because it overlooks the fact or hides the fact that we do agree on so many, many things. And I also think that that can help you come together like you're both colleagues and partners in the success of the school rather than um, the principal trying to force the teacher to do something or trying to um, stamp out the rights of the students. And instead, um, you're finding the common ground and putting the focus on that. And so I just I really, really believe strongly in that. And it has proven successful to me um, throughout my career in many cases. And so I just think that can be very helpful in a, in a good philosophy. So I thank Randy for that many years ago. And yeah. it's something that he has shared a lot. 
and, and I think you know we we were talking in the run up to this uh, about about providing audience members with a little bit of homework on on instituting some of this you know incremental change, and and I'd like to bring together a couple threads. Uh, I, I reached out on Facebook to one of the advisors groups and and said that I was recording this afternoon and wondering if if people had questions about um, developing or or, or uh, um, healing or maturing relationships with uh, principles. You've addressed a lot about that. The the um, can we agree on? But one question that came up from Ron White uh, on Facebook was, "How do you establish ground rules with a new principal?" Uh, he says, "In my state, the larger districts often move principals to new schools every four to five years." So um, thinking about that and thinking about some of the homework that I asked you to ponder uh, of giving. Um, our, our audience members, you had talked about uh, a low level or a low risk meeting over the summer to talk about philosophy and and to to share in that. So I'm wondering if we can bring that kind of together and tie a neat bow on it to address Ron's question and and again give our uh, or encourage the advisors listening to to a little bit of, of summertime homework. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's really important, and it doesn't have to be just when you have a brand new principal. It certainly can be just an opportunity to chat with a principal because it's something that you want to do, and it could also be your supervising administrator. You know, it's going to be different for every school, but um, I mean, it's also a reminder to me because we're also getting a new principal this year, and that I need to schedule that for when the new principal starts working uh, next month. But I think what's really important there is that it's done outside of some sort of crisis moment and it's okay. done in a way that is just very low risk and you know it could be something as casual as hey can we get a coffee and just talk about journalism and i have some um you know i'd like to understand more about what you think about the program uh, and i'd like to share with you some things i've been thinking about you know and I think that's part of every individual educator's professional growth and development is to be reflective on their practice and then also to um, evolve every year. And I, I will say that I think I've evolved a lot in my career over more than two decades that I maybe wasn't that comfortable doing something like that early in my career because I didn't have the confidence. Um, and I maybe didn't have the experience or even the self-awareness to be able to do it. And I think I do now. Um, but I think also with a new principal, you know, just an opportunity. Hey, you're new. I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about our program. And certainly it could tell you about the successes and tell about kind of how things operate. And that's also a place where you can feel out, is this a person who is going to see things the same way that I see them? Right, or is right. there some educating that needs to be done? And I think that that, again, don't wait until there's a crisis or they surprise you like, Hey, I got a phone call from a cranky parent, and now I'm going to have to start reviewing every proof of the yearbook. You know, if you want the principal to be your ally and your partner, and the principal wants you to be a professional, capable, independent educator and not, you know, cause problems. And so I think you can, you can kind of figure that out and develop your relationship. And how do we then get to a place, uh, and maybe it's like the third leg of this conversation? Ultimately, we're, maybe you and I are ending where we sh we want advisors to start, you know, with their kids. Right? How do you empower those relationships, uh, meaning students to administrator, and and how do you get to that place? And and I'm not coming up with this question on my own. Another comment um, from online, uh, Bonnie Katziv, uh, somebody I know from the the Reynolds Institute at uh, at uh, University of Arizona. 
um, she said, uh, or ASU, I should say, she said, how do you involve students in relationship building with administrators? And again, like in, in, you do it in the good times, right? Before any problems occur. Absolutely. How, how do you support your editors in advocating for their own press rights and, and, and putting them uh, in the lead? And I, I'm going to guess your answer is with so much of this conversation, it's a progression, it's, you know, it's, it's process and it's over time. Uh, one where I'm assuming now your kids are firmly in the lead, but how have you gotten there and, and how do you put them at the fore? Well, I think, again, it starts with education. So they need to understand the law and they need to understand what their rights are. But I also think that your job as a teacher is to kind of nudge them out of the nest when you know that they can fly. And, you know, you can use whatever metaphor or analogy that you want, but I, I don't think that you should... Um, send a student off if the student isn't prepared. So right, if they don't right. know the law or if they're just, you know, repeating what you've told them, then, then it's not going to be a success. That said, I think if the students are practicing good, responsible journalism, it's a lot easier to say we should, you know, have no prior review, for example, if they've proven that there's no reason for concern. And so I think you, you have to kind of build up that foundation of credibility as well. But I, I think one thing for me, at least, that changed this in my mind was kind of stopping referring to it as my yearbook or my newspaper or using the plural, we did a story on this or we don't cover that. I talk about that in third person. My students do this. My students cover that um, because I'm not the person covering it. I work for the school, and in a public school, I'm a government employee. I, I am an employee of this institution, and I have been charged with the task, but the students are the ones who have these rights. And at the end of the day, if they do get in legal trouble, they're the ones who are going to have to advocate for their rights and use resources like the Student Press Law Center because they're the ones whose rights have been violated, potentially, not the teachers. And so... I think what's really important there is to build up enough foundation with students so that they have a strong education and they can advocate for themselves and empower them. So when you shift that, you're not the sort of sage on the stage, you're the guide on the side and yeah, you that. are the one who, yeah, I didn't come up with that either. I don't remember <laughs> where I got that, but, um, <laughs> but you're the ones, you're the one who is supporting them and guiding them and you're the resource for them. Again, you can't just do that on day one. You have to encourage it in them. But within a few months of the school year starting, you should have at least a few students who feel this empowerment. And your job is to, I think, ultimately, shouldn't all of our jobs as educators be that students can get to a point where they are advocating for themselves, where they are taking responsibility for their own learning, where they are um, leading discussions or interacting with the principal or the school board or complaining parents or a coach who doesn't like how things were covered. I mean, I don't think it's a scapegoat to say, oh, it's a student publication and so here's the student editor. I think it's actually what we should be doing is teaching students how to um, interact in that mature, responsible way 
and then letting them do it, just like we're teaching them how to write or how to take photos or how to design and then let them do it. So I will be happy to support them and coach them through some potential questions or some talking points, but I have never met with our school principal and student editors about the um, their work. content of the yearbook or the, yeah, I've never, I've never been part of that meeting. So um, they have done that on their own. So let me for perhaps what'll be our last question, because we're, we're going a little bit long here, but this is incredible. And thank you. Um, sure. Charlene uh, Tennant Peel is an advisor in, in Canada. And so things are a little bit different, but she said, I'd like to know where you draw the line regarding student editorial freedom. Would you let them print anything they want if they really wanted to, or do you draw the line somewhere? And, and before I turn you loose on that question, I, I think it's important to bound it because I know both of us would reply, you know, as long as it's not limited by case law, as long as it's not libelous or incitement and things like you check, those are just, those are pretty easy boxes to check. They're big boxes and they're important mm -hmm. boxes, but as long as we're not there, um, dot, 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 you can, you can respond there. Um, but I will say before you get started, I, I have a, a dear friend, uh, who will remain nameless, who said to me a couple, I know, probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, we were talking about a, a very similar topic to this. And she said, I think we were talking about a design thing, like, a, you know, the kids wanted to go one way with the cover and, and I didn't or something like that. And she said, you know, there are very few decisions made, if any, in our lab that I'm not in favor of to begin with. And, and I'm not offering that sarcastically. And, and I think there's a couple of different ways to, to come at this, um, that, you know, when we are at our best as advisors, uh, it's entirely possible that our editors or our student leaders or the staff could disagree with us, but I, I don't know, maybe I'm losing track of my own question, but you know, or maybe you can, you can bail me out, but uh, you know, should, should we put zebra print stripes on the cover, Mr. Simmons? Well, yes, design editor, that is something you could do, but don't you think that there are some other options here that are more closely aligned to the theme that you've established for the year? You know, that might be a very brief example of a conversation that I could have about questionable design choices. If a kid comes to you, Logan, and says, hey, we need to cover X, Y, Z, and you know that that way lies peril, um, isn't, isn't necessarily illegal. You know, is, is there, is there a, an inflection point where you push back some, I, perhaps, you know, where I'm trying to take this question. I feel like I'm stumbling on it, but yeah, well, I think a lot of that has to do with ethics. And so just to get on the record, if a student came to me and said, we want to cover this, or, you know, is there a limit? I would say the limit is the law. Okay. So uh, yes, you can. The question is, should you? Right. And I may have a lot of potential discussion points or arguments as to why something should or shouldn't be done. One of them might be, I think my job is on the line if you publish this. I mean, right. if it is on the line. And that's something I think that should be considered. And so for advisors who perhaps are not in, you know, they're a, a probationary status or the, they just don't have the credibility built up yet. Yeah, that's a concern. And I'm really sensitive to that because I've been there at two different schools. And so um, I may have other points like, I think this is going to really upset a lot of people. A lot of people. Um, one other one might be, I think this isn't really that much of a story or it's just not 
maybe the time to do this story. So those are discussions we can have about the journalistic value or the particular coverage method, or do we need this picture or don't we need this picture or things like that. But um, the question about whether something is legal or not, once that's dispensed with, it's all ethics after that. Right. And understanding that, you know, the SPJ and NSPA both have um, codes of ethics and at the core of them are to seek the truth and to report it, but also to minimize harm. And if the harm is going to be on your audience or it's going to be on the reputation of the school or it's going to be on the potential employment of your advisor, I think those are factors you have to weigh. Um, and so there are times, though, I have felt like my my job was, I wouldn't say imperiled, but certainly I was concerned about the impact. And, you know, I felt that the journalism was worth it, and, but it was also defensible. Right. And right. I've... I've said several times in my career, listen, I will defend you and your decision-making process and your rationale for this, but I need to know what that is and I need it to be clear. I cannot defend you if you don't know why you're doing something. But mm -hmm. if you do and you can articulate that, then I'm going to be your number one spokesperson. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that that, I think that really fuels the kind of decisions that get made. And, you know, one last point I guess I would make that is at the end of the day, the teacher has a lot of power. And even with students who have a lot of freedom, you know, how are editors selected or how are grades handed out? You know, I have a lot of levers that I can push if I want to really win. Um, but it's not about that, right? I mean, I could say, you know, if you make this editorial decision, I would have a hard time seeing you continue in the role of an editor. Or oh, yeah. I don't see how you could get an A this semester if this is the kind of decision you make, right? I can win because I have that power. But that's not, I mean, that's pretty despicable. And maybe there are people who play that game. I don't. I, I hope that nobody does. But yeah, at the end of the day, I can win that in that way. But that's sort of the nuclear option, right? I don't want to yep. go there. Um, but I think the the real art of it is the discussion that's around, and that's really, really where the learning takes place, is that discussion around why you want to do this and really what's the point or what's the gain and what's the potential uh, impact or damage as a result. And maybe there's a lot to gain and no damage. And if so, then go for it. That's a really eloquent response to a badly formed question. So thank you for bailing <laughs> me out. <laughs> um, we're gonna go. Uh, we're gonna go rapid fire here on a on a wrap up, um, and and you'll know, call it the uh, the you and I step in at the second floor of the elevator. We're going up to six, and that's all the time you've got. On a couple of questions that came in uh, again on on Facebook, um, my principal didn't ask to preview their yearbook spreads before uh, submission but I did have a teacher who wants to pre-approve the spreads and subject matter that involve her students and classes. She was disappointed with last year's coverage. How do you go? No. Um, I mean, that's my mental response. I think help her understand the student publication and that maybe there's some legitimacy to why she was disappointed with the coverage. So I certainly would welcome her to explain what was disappointing about the coverage. And maybe you need to educate her on who makes the decisions about why those decisions are made and how they're made. Um, and, you know, find some middle ground. And if it's that, you know, maybe we need better communication to know about certain events or activities, or maybe she just wants more coverage because she's greedy. I don't know. But I think there are diplomatic ways to make somebody feel that they've been heard. And she may be right. 
And if she is right, then act on it. And I think that just because a person doesn't have a degree in journalism or doesn't teach the journalism class, that they don't have a, a good opinion or can't make a point. I always try to check my own ego at the door in those conversations. Think, wait a second, Mike, they might be right. Like that you might've missed the biggest storyline of the year and, and keep yourselves open to that. Uh, very similar question from Sergio in Colorado. We have coaches who try to cherry pick which athletes are interviewed and covered in the book. Even though the AD has frowned upon that practice, these coaches continue to do it and hand us particular kids. What are some ways our staff can handle that kind of situation? Diversify the coverage or go your own way, get the athletes that you really want to Logan. Yeah, I think so. I mean, first of all, you're telling the story of the season and the student who sits the bench has gone to the same number of practices and same number of games as the star. And their story is different and it may not be the one the coach wants to portray, but it is a legitimate story. So find a way. I mean, certainly you could take the sources that the coach wants to put forward, but you also could create a module or a sidebar piece or block of copy about some other story aspect and go find that story. And maybe that's a little passive aggressive, but do it in a way that's only going to be able to use the sources that you want to use. So maybe you're just doing a sidebar on people who played not very much or people who were injured or, um, you know, something like that. And listen, your kids are the ones who are making the choice about what's in the yearbook and they are in classes, whether it's Spanish class or chemistry or whatever with these athletes. And so Mm, they don't, the athletes aren't needing permission from the coach to talk to them. If they want to talk, they can talk. Right. Uh, That's a, that's a huge point. Um, This one could be its own podcast. How do you teach leadership? No, I mean, really, this is from Connie uh, Grable on Facebook. Uh, (laughs) When there, there are no outstanding leaders on your staff, where do you start on on bringing out or nurturing the ability to lead peers? Is there a quick uh, one, two, three that you could give Connie and, and the rest of our colleagues out there? I wish there was a quick one. <laughs> one point I will make quickly is that I think leadership is simultaneously who you think the leaders are, as well as who the students on the staff want to follow. And you know, every year when I go through the editor selection process, I hope that the ones that I think are leaders are the ones the staff will follow. Because if that's out of alignment, you've got a major problem. And so I do think that you have to have conversations with your students about leadership and what the qualities of a leader are and noticing that certain people may be leaders, but they're leading in the wrong direction. Uh, influencing in in ways that are not helpful and others that maybe have voice that needs to be nurtured and developed and amplified. And so I think there are ways to, to do that. For example, you know, classroom activities where everyone gets the same opportunity to talk and everyone's an equal. So sitting in the same circle, that sort of thing. Um, but also just recognizing that who I want to be the leader isn't always the leader or the person that I relate to the best as the teacher mm, yep. isn't always the leader or the person who's the martyr isn't always the leader, right? Working the hardest uh, or the longest or the most isn't necessarily a quality of leadership. It can be, but it isn't necessarily. It's interesting too to, to hear you parse that that way. And, and maybe I'll have you back on, or we could just go sidebar <laughs> on this. I, you know, we get to a point where I have the kids self nominate if they want to be an editor in chief, usually around February. And I immediately take those names after, you know, a week or so. I usually leverage uh, Google surveys and forms to do this. And I'll put those names back in front of the staff and I'll say, 
please provide me feedback uh, on these people. And oh, by the way, feel free to nominate or suggest anybody else who isn't on the list. And that feedback mm -hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons has been really informative uh, on helping me get through that. I, 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 you, you know me to be a people person. I, I relate to people. I enjoy those relationships. And it may entirely be that, that the kid with whom I'm the tightest uh, is not the kid, like you just said, that the, that the staff wants uh, to be led by. And that's really a really valid point. Um, our friend Jim Jordan had a unique approach, at least well, more than once. He shared with me that they would get out of the year with no clear front runner for an EIC position, and he would get all the way through their first deadline the following year before naming editors. And they, they he would name the people that did the work and stayed and, and dialed into it. And, and I think mm -hmm. there's some that, that, that's interesting, at the very least to me, that, that that's interesting, that you are, you know, leader less from a certain point of view uh, through, you know, October. And, uh, and then that kid has, who has distinguished themselves, uh, you know, rises to the top. It's interesting. Yeah. I, and I would argue that he probably was never leaderless. There was probably always some student or small group of students who were really the engine there. Sure. And yep. he is an expert facilitator of that, Yeah. <laughs> but who, you know, maybe they just did, hadn't settled on the roles or the position titles and things like that. But there's always someone who's going to take into step into the role and again, I think that person better better be the person that works well with you, but also who the staff uh, sees as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Logan, my friend, uh, it, it has been an absolute delight to have you on the podcast today. Uh, thanks for getting through those technical difficulties back there. And thank you so much for sharing your your insight and just your, you, you are, I said it to you already, and I know I don't need to slather you in compliments, but you're just uh, so articulate and explain these things so well, explain your point of view so well. Uh, I'm just grateful for both your, your input and insight today and, and your friendship. Thank you so much, Logan. Thank you. And I want to put in one last plug for the Student Press Law Center at splc.org. Yes, and I forgot to mention earlier that I am on the board of directors for that. And it's a role that I take very seriously. So I'm happy to be able to share my knowledge and experience. And hopefully it's been helpful to someone out there. And um, I look forward to being a listener. Ah, appreciate that. And and two, I should, with splc.org, we should also highlight JEA's resource, the Scholastic Press Rights Committee at JEASPRC. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, there's so many resources out there for all of us. We really should take advantage of them. Uh, Logan, once again, thank you. My pleasure. I said it a couple times there at the end, but uh, thank you again to Logan uh, for his time and his uh, his insights on everything that we just covered. I know it's a long one and, and maybe, you know, I can hope that it's one that might be worth listening back to and, uh, and taking some notes or breaking down. Certainly, I'd encourage you to put this, uh, this episode in front of your students, uh, most especially your editors, your decision makers, uh, those students that you're empowering in your own uh, newsroom and lab. As we uh, edge here closer to summer, I do have a, a few more uh, podcasts planned, uh, some interviews coming up uh, before too long. And, uh, and we'll be out on the workshop circuit in the month of July, uh, visiting Atlanta, St. Louis, and Orlando. So certainly, if we end up at a workshop together uh, and you're a listener, do say hi, and uh, maybe we'll get you on the podcast. Uh, for now, friends, though, I hope all is well uh, with you and yours post-distribution and that you are staring some time for yourself uh, squarely in the face as you, uh, as you ease into summer uh, and, uh, and enjoy it. For now, though, be well. Good luck. We'll talk soon. <laughs>